Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast, where we feature the stories of activists, lawyers, and storytellers on the front lines fighting for justice and liberation. If you want to know more about the Center for Constitutional Rights and our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter, Frontlines of Justice, and we'll keep you up to date on important developments and exciting events near you or online. You can also make a donation to help us keep doing the vital work of supporting our partners, movements, and communities. As always, don't forget to subscribe to The Activist Files and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And now, here's The Activist Files podcast. Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I'm Pardis Kebriai, I'm an attorney here. I'm here with three guests. Fasil Hashmi, Jean Fio Harris, and Mortaza Hussein. Uh, they will introduce themselves in a moment. But just by way of introduction into what we're going to be talking about today, I wanted to say a bit about one of CCR's longtime clients. Um, he is Ahmed Abouali. He's a 40 year old man who is currently serving a sentence of life without parole in a federal prison. Communications Management Unit in Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, Ahmed was convicted in 2005 of various terrorism-related charges. The case against him, the prosecution's entire case against him, rested on a forced confession that was obtained during a period when he was detained in Saudi Arabia by the Saudi secret police, the Mubahis, uh, which is an agency that is notorious for brutal treatment and torture of people in its custody. Ahmed also experienced torture. Under those con- con- conditions, he made a statement, made a confession that was then admitted uh, into evidence at his trial and used to convict. There were other violations of his rights as a criminal defendant at his trial, and you can read more about his case on CCR's website. Things like the government's main witnesses were the Saudi interrogators who obtained this this forced confession. They were deposed remotely, anonymously, outside of of Ahmed's presence, um, completely undermining his right as a criminal defendant to confront the witnesses against him. The prosecutor said things to the jury in the presence of the jury and the judge allowed it. Things like this man will can kill all of you if you don't convict. So due process in his case looked a bit like that. Um, he was convicted despite the fact that there was, as the judge said in, its, in his sentencing opinion, there was no victim no actual plot, no actual violence, no leadership role by Ahmed, only vague allegations of conspiracy. He got 30 years, a 30-year sentence, um, which was under the government's recommendation, under the, the sentencing guidelines. The government considered that too lenient, 30 years too lenient for a crime with no victim, appealed the sentence, and Ahmed was ultimately resentenced to life without parole. So that is what he is facing now in federal prison. He's been in custody, whether in Saudi custody or U.S. custody, since 2003. It's been 18 years of imprisonment and conditions like solitary confinement and for a long time, special administrative measures, which are sort of enhanced solitary, which we'll talk more about. 18 years based on a forced confession under those kinds of conditions and a life without parole sentence for a crime with no victim. Ahmed is just one of hundreds of people 
who's been prosecuted and convicted of terrorism since 9-11, many of whom are still in prison, some of whom have been released but are living with the experience of their imprisonment, they and their families and their communities. And we're here to talk about these cases because while there's a certain growing understanding and has been for a long time of the unfairness and the injustice of the criminal justice system at large, broadly, and a certain skepticism and scrutiny, questions we ask of other cases when it comes to this realm of prosecutions and cases, um, these national security terrorism cases, there has been over the past 20 years, far less examination and understanding of what actually happens in the context of due process, what due process looks like and what the impact of these cases is. And instead, a dominant narrative has been that the federal courts are in fact where we want to be. And that has been understandable, that messaging, because we've been fighting things like Guantanamo, the military detention system there, and things like the military commission system, systems that are overtly, plainly unfair or where people are being held without charge. So while it is true that we want to dismantle and end those systems and we don't want to be there and maybe the federal courts are the appropriate place to deal with prosecution, uh, and they are, the analysis and the discussion has sort of stopped there for many years. It really has not gone further to look underneath conviction, look at how arrests are brought, how, what the nature, nature of charges are, what happens at trial, what the conditions are under which people are being held, what the impact of these cases is on the human beings who've been affected, on the communities that have been affected. So that's what we're here to talk about, this realm of work and what actually has happened over the past 20 years. Uh, and the people here um, with me today are activists in different ways who've been at the forefront of this work, of telling the stories of people who've been prosecuted who've been advocating for those on the inside and who've been working to expose and end government abuse in this realm. So I will stop there and turn to each of you, Fasil Jean and Mortaza, and just ask you to start with talking a bit about your connection to this work and how you got into it. Sure, I'll begin. My introduction to this work was by circumstance. I have a brother. Uh, my brother Fahad was a, you know, post 9-11 was an activist in New York City. You know, we're from New York City. And uh, he went to Brooklyn College, uh, and he was an activist on behalf of the Muslim community and events related to the Muslim community. So with that said, he pursued a master's degree after graduating in, in London. And when he was pursuing his master's degree about 2004, an acquaintance of his stayed in his apartment and uh, then left. Fast forward to 2006, after my brother got his master's degree, he was arrested in England, ostensibly on charges that he allowed this acquaintance to stay with him. And in the acquaintance possession was ponchos and socks in his luggage, which he, this acquaintance went on to deliver to some unsavory characters. He, my brother was arrested on a charges from the United States under the material support paradigm and basically spent a year in England contesting his extradition and then was brought to America in 2007 uh, and had levied upon him four charges, all under the material support paradigm that amounted to 70 years in prison for uh, allowing this person who stayed with him, who went on to deliver socks and ponchos. That was the case against my brother. And 
it was a you know massive hit on our family. It was quite impactful. It was a massive hit on our community, right? So he was well known in the community. We had we had roots in New York City in the outer boroughs. And with that said, his case, <laughs> the outlines of it, the, the details of it just seemed <laughs> it seemed ridiculous, right? That a person can be facing 70 years in jail for somebody else's actions. And it wasn't just that aspect of it. Uh, when he came here, he was immediately put into solitary confinement. And our community uh, and our family, we, we hired lawyers. And his case ahead of a trial dragged on for three years where he was in solitary confinement in some of the worst conditions in a prison called MCC, which is being shut down for its conditions right now, in 23 hours of solitary confinement, video monitored. On top of that, he had very limited access to his family, visitation to his family. And this is all pre-trial ahead of any decision on his case. And it, it basically demonstrated to the larger Muslim community the pitfalls of the, the judicial system, right? That it is an unfair judicial system. It is a harsh judicial system. It tortures by subjecting people to solitary confinement. It tortures by denying them access to their families. And we saw that happening in real time, him being impacted by these conditions. On top of that, as Pardis had mentioned, there were something called special administrative measures. My brother was uh, an academic. He had never been in trouble in his life. And the Attorney General of the United States, three Attorney Generals in the United States subsequently levied special administrative measures, which are extreme measures to limit the communication of a person from their lawyer or from their lawyer communicating out to their, from, to their family. So it seemed like every tool was used to stack the system. So with that said, there was uh, his friends, his family, supporters coalesced around his case to bring attention to the case, his conditions of confinement, what, what turned out to be the evidence being secret evidence that he wasn't even allowed to see, his communication being limited, his lawyer's communication being limited. So there were so many aspects of his case that highlighted the inherent injustice of, of the judicial system, the federal ju judicial system. Uh, and, you know, ahead of his trial, a full four years later, my brother took a plea uh, to one count. Instead of facing 70 years, it amounted to about 15 years in prison. And subsequently, he was moved to the super maximum security prison in Colorado, where he served his time there and at the communication management unit in Terre Haute. Uh, with that said, he spent another three years in the super maximum security prison, further solitary confinement, altogether about six years of solitary confinement, uh, 13 years uh, altogether in prison. Again, a devastating impact on the community, a devastating impact on my family, our extended family. And it just, outside of this impact, it kind of, it was different in that there was a lot of uh, organizing around his case, a lot of analysis of his case, a lot of visibility of his case, where people started looking at the federal system and being subjected to these terrorism charges uh, in, in a more grand view and in a, in a more detailed view. And it became obvious to, uh, to people that there was something seriously wrong with this system and, and the way to handle things. And he was amongst many people, hundreds of people, as Pradeesh mentioned, that were subjected to these type of cases. Thanks so much, Basil. Um, Jean, you want to jump in? Yeah. 
So in some sense, I pick up the story that Basil just laid out for us. I'm a professor at Brooklyn College, uh, and I have Fahad as a student. He does his senior seminar with me. I then write him a letter to go to grad school and send him on his way. And then fast forward a couple years, as Basil was just saying, and huge headlines uh, across the city. Homegrown terrorist has been arrested uh, in, at Heathrow. So the case is like, you know, one of these cases that ends up on the front page. Um, and at the time at Brooklyn College, we're told to don't say anything. Don't talk to the media. The, the case, the outlines of it, you know, Al-Qaeda quartermaster, these kinds of languages. So I have to say, I put it out of my mind and don't really think about it for another year. Uh, and then, as Basil's saying, uh, Fahad loses his extradition. He tries to prevent his extradition, and he loses, and he comes to the United States. And a colleague who'd also had Fahad asks me about the case and asks me, what do I think? Is, you know, had I heard anything? Uh, in part because, as Fasa was mentioning, Fahad was, um, at this point, probably one of the most politically active, if not the most politically active, religiously conservative Muslim student I'd had. Uh, and again, we'll, we'll see a growing political community at Brooklyn College. But at this point, Fahad was very unusual in our student body. And I'm a scholar of the Black freedom struggle. And so as I start to kind of read about the case and think about the case, it's not sitting right with me because it seemed like maybe we could not divorce his much more outspoken, both religiosity and politics. And so I do something I've never done before or since, which is that I reach out to the lawyer to kind of get a sense of the case and what it is. And I have to say, at this point, like most people, right, we're committed civil rights, civil liberties people are spending their energy is in the system that's being created with the military commissions at Guantanamo. And this idea that the United States had created this whole shadow system to be able to treat people different, to be able to like limit their rights in court. And, and so as I start to look at Fahad's case, one of the things that I realize is that even though there's this shadow system that's predicated on the fact that they have to do this because, you, because the courts are so open and fair, in fact, what's happened at Guantanamo has a parallel to what's happened here in the United States. And at this, I mean, I think the other, what we're seeing also is even though there's no attention to these national security places, certainly, you know, by 2007, 2008, we are seeing people really starting to scrutinize the criminal justice system. Um, and the ways that, the way we imagine the criminal justice system to work isn't actually the way the criminal justice system to work. Because I think, and particularly in these national security cases, part of the whole rationale of the way we were talking about Guantanamo was this idea that the judge would reign in the government, that maybe the government was overstepping, particularly in the aftermath of 9-11, but the, the beauty of the federal system was that the court would then rein it in, right? And I think one of the things as I start to look at Fahad's case and then increasingly at other cases is this is not actually true. And so some of the things that we might think a judge would step in on, like the use of prolonged solitary confinement before trial in that the ways that compromises a person's ability to participate in their own defense, the ways that it compromises their mental health, the ways that it's predicated on conduct that has not been proven, right? Uh, things like the use of classified evidence, right? So in the 1980s, to prosecute U.S. intelligence officers who were spying for the Soviet Union, 
they introduced this law called the Classified Information Procedures Act, which allows the government to, because one of the things that people who were spies would often do is threaten to like reveal classified evidence in court. But after 9-11, this law gets used to classify not people who actually have any knowledge of U.S. intelligence, but in, in these sort of highly high stakes terrorism cases. And so again, that um, the evidence, and, and one of the things I wanna mention is that Fassel didn't underline is that Fahad is a US citizen, right? And so that what we imagine to be the rights of US citizens uh, don't seem to be applying here. And so again, I, I, I sit with it and after a while, I, I write a piece for the nation. Um, basically outlining sort of Fahad's case, but also the kind of larger kind of context of what's happening in the federal system, including material support, including the use of classified evidence, including the use of pretrial solitary confinement. Um, and that begins a kind of both an exploration for me personally as a scholar and an activist, but also begins, I think, a growing attention to kind of what's happening in the federal system and a kind of local activist movement then kind of comes up, again, both around the specifics of Fahad's case, but also to kind of like, to say, okay, we have to be focusing on closing Guantanamo. And again, now we're in the Obama administration and Obama comes in saying, we're going to close Guantanamo. And so part of what this kind of growing organizing is saying is that's not enough, that we can't just look there, we have to look what's happening within the federal system. And we have to kind of challenge this idea of a kind of open and fair federal system. So that's really where I come into this. And, and again, both as an activist and a scholar. Thank you, Jane. We're gonna talk more about the organizing and everything that was tried and done. Murtaza. Yeah, uh, I'm Murtaza Hussain. I'm a reporter for The Intercept, a national security reporter. And uh, I came at the subject a bit differently. I came at it from a uh, reporting perspective. But I did have a personal interest in or something that piqued my interest in the subject because uh, you know, obviously everyone who grew up uh, post 9-11 or who was quite young when 9-11 happened, uh, there was a very big shift in American popular culture and uh, political culture and the judicial system. And in the years after that, you know, there were many arrests of cases. Uh, they started becoming a steady drumbeat of arrests of cases. People may forget, have forgotten this period, is being forgotten now. But uh, you know, every week or so there were some, or month or so, there was some plot foiled in some part of the country or some group of men or individual young men uh, who were arrested on uh, ostensible terrorism charges. It was very interesting at the time because, you know, there was the suggestion by uh, law enforcement as a result was that the United States was full of terrorists and there were all these plots being foiled and there was political pressure and incentive on the part of the law enforcement agents and uh, political figures to generate these cases or to generate as many as possible. And there are a couple of cases really stuck in my mind, including uh, uh, Fahad Hashmi's case, and, but there are many, many more. And I think, in, especially in the first couple of years after 9-11, there was just a flood of cases, which would, even by the standards of today, which are by no means pristine, there were particularly egregious prosecutions and arrests and uh, sting, sting operations and uh, ostensible plots foiled. So, you know, this year, the years kind of passed. And then I got into journalism a bit later, maybe a decade or so after 9-11, and uh, I was doing foreign policy coverage. But then, you know, we started looking back at some of these cases from that period, including Fahad uh, Hashmi's case, and there were many, you know, glaring irregularities. And then when the actual event of 9-11 and the intense you know, changes it wrought on the United States start to dissipate, we can look at these cases somewhat soberly, and they were just shocking, many of them. And, you know, there were cases, I'll take one illustrative one, which I talk about a lot, was the 465 case, say, uh, 
a prosecution of a group of young men, including three Albanian brothers in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which was led by Chris Christie, who was at that time the uh, uh, attorney general for New Jersey. And, you know, it was a case where these informants had basically infiltrated a community and they had no specific criminal plot they were looking for. It was just a fishing expedition and they were paid a lot of money and they were given a lot of incentives, immigration-wise and legal otherwise, uh, in criminal cases, you know, to generate a case in this hand on this part. So about 18 months, they investigated this case and, you know, they ended up charging the gentleman with uh, terrorism, but there was no plot. There was no connection to foreign terrorist groups. There was no, uh, the judge at the trial acknowledged that they didn't seem to know about any terrorism case. And the informant who we later found and filmed or did a documentary with, he told us that I told the FBI agents again and again, there was no case here. These guys are not guilty of anything. And they said, don't worry about it. Just keep, uh, just keep recording them. And at the trial, the judge actually said that, that there's not any direct evidence of your involvement in this plot did not bother the jury and does not bother me either before sentencing them to life in prison. So, you know, I just bring up that example because it's just one of you know, hundreds and hundreds of cases which took place in the U.S. And those are specifically cases that were charged as terrorism. There are other cases people were basically accused of being terrorists but charged with other things. And they, those cases even are more under the radar than the one we're discussing right now. But, you know, it was it was sort of like there's two reasons to focus on this. And I think that there's still, it bears continued focus going forward. Number one, you know, it's kind of like, it's like a very easy pickings for if you want to see how the justice system can be in its most egregious and most, you know, unjust form. Uh, you look at those cases from that first decade after 9-11, even cases today, which are, there's been some improvement in my opinion, but it's still many, many bad cases that have to take place. And the improvements come because of the all scrutiny and pressure, which is built in the years since. But, you know, there are all these terrible cases which bear review when people are still in jail for. Or if they're not still in jail, they, you know, the criminal lives been ruined by the experience of that happening. So I think reporters everywhere, their interest to look at these cases again. And secondly, you know, without uh, going back over the history of this period, a very false history will be embedded of what actually took place in the U.S. post 9-11. It'll be that the FBI successfully stopped dozens more attacks, mass casualty attacks or prospective 9-11s by arresting these hundreds of people. And that's just not what happened. That's not the story of what took place. And of course, the 9-11 hijackers were not U.S. citizens or residents either. Uh, the people who rounded up these cases were on often very flimsy pretext. They were subjected to, by proxy, the nation's anger over 9-11 was taken out on them. And, you know, in many cases, they had nothing to do with anything even remotely to do with terrorism or international politics even. Uh, they were just very, you know, just ordinary people living in the United States who happen to have be the wrong skin color, name, or religion after 9-11. So uh, I continue to report on these cases, you know, going his the historical ones and then contemporary ones because there was, there's been a lull now, I think, but then there was a pickup in cases similar to this in the ISIS era. So when the U.S. had the conflict with ISIS, there were many, many cases, arrests, several hundred again, suspected uh, ISIS cases. I think those cases were a bit different in some sense because it's just a very subtle difference uh, because ISIS and Al-Qaeda were different and Al-Qaeda was the typical thing you accuse people of being associated with post 9-11. Now, ISIS, you know, people, I find that uh, the cases post 9-11, there was a concerted attempt to attack very educated or you could say like elite people of the Muslim community in the United States, charities, academics, business people who had a lot of money and were philanthropists, things like that. In the ISIS cases, I find that they really target another group of people who are very vulnerable because they're, in many cases, you know, they have mental illness or they have drug problems or they're other have indigent in other ways. Um, so they're the other side of the spectrum of, you know, the Muslim community. And not all of them are immigrants. Many of them are white Americans or black Americans. And, you know, they are very susceptible to being encouraged to, you know, susceptible to the, the prompts of informants because they have no, they have very little way of, uh, 
guarding against that. And they may be on the verge of being in the criminal justice system anyways. And, you know, there are statistics of, you know, X number of ISIS cases foiled post 9-11. And the thing that really frustrates me and frustrated me about the previous generation cases and still, and why I think that it's important for substantive journalism to take place, and of course, also the efforts of uh, activists and groups like CCR, is that the vast majority of these cases, there's a criminal complaint and there's a press release that goes out about these cases. And it says that, you know, ISIS plot was foiled in Ohio and, uh, you know, the FBI successfully did this and that. And congratulations, we can move on. And what, I, what you find is that the vast majority of reporting about these cases is actually just a rewrite of the press release. So reporters take a press release, they rewrite it with a little bit of context or maybe not that much context. And that's the story that goes out. And there's not really any follow-up or digging into it. So what I found is actually if you do two things, if you actually read the complaint and you read the blow-by-blow itemization of what the government lives happens, it often doesn't live up to the press, their own press release. And it's actually very, oftentimes very troubling, you know, the informant was the one who initiated the plot or the gentleman or the woman tried to back out of the plot, but money was offered, something like, something like this. Never makes it to the news, never makes it to the public consciousness of what the case was. Uh, that's that. And then you can actually talk to the lawyers and, and that's the government side of the story still, but you can talk to lawyers, you can talk to the people involved. You can do the bare minimum investigative work to understand what happened here. And it's very, very rare that it all, many times it falls apart. The entire premise and the entire political depiction of what took place completely falls apart. If you look at the Fahad Hashmi's case, you know, that's also a good example. Like, you know, it was reported, as uh, Gene said, is Al-Qaeda quartermaster or facilitator in the United States. It sounds terrifying. It sounds like a very serious uh, serious accusation. And of course, it scares people off too. It scares people off looking into it too deeply because no one wants to be accused of sympathy with an Al-Qaeda quartermaster, whatever that means. But, you know, the the packaging or the marketing of these cases simply does not live up to what the reality of, the, of them is in the vast majority of cases. But unfortunately, the way that things are set up in the United States, the, there's a lot of political incentive and career incentive for law enforcement agents and politicians to trumpet these cases and make them seem as big and as consequential as possible. I mentioned the 465 case. Chris Christie was involved in that case. You know, Chris Christie, of course, you know, later went on to be a governor. He went on to a pretty successful national political career. He's quite famous now as a politician. And he continues to trumpet his success in that case foiling this ostensible terrorist plot as uh, one of the crown achievements of his career. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's not reality. Like, I think that the, the importance of paying attention to these cases is if you want to discern reality from fa- fantasy in a very serious way, which impacts a lot of people's lives, uh, you can take a look at these cases. It reminds me of, uh, I was talking about something yesterday, it reminds me, not to say there's not been any successful terrorism, actual terrorism plot in the United States, there have been a few, but uh, the vast majority of them, it reminds me from the Soviet Union or in uh, China during the Great Leap Forward, there would be directives coming from the central government that we need to have X tons of steel or wheat uh, produced per year. If you look at the FBI uh, directives per year, there have been years where they had directives to have X number of terrorism plots for that year. And if the supply of terrorism plots cannot meet the demand, something has to give here. Something has to, uh, you need to generate the cases to, uh, to meet that supply. And the people who don't want to do that from a structural standpoint inside the FBI, who, you know, they want to, you know, actually combat crime and terrorism, which is legitimate. But, you know, if they don't do it, if they don't generate cases, they'll fall behind their career. And the people who are the ones who are willing to generate cases that are borderline or over the line in the sense of not being legitimate, uh, those people will meet their metrics and they'll succeed. And, you know, absent a great deal of scrutiny on the individual cases here, you know, they will just keep it happening again and again. And unfortunately, I've seen that in the media, there is continued to be the overall majority of people in the media are not, they have no desire or, you know, they're reticent to, or they believe what, what's being told to them by these press releases and other statements from the FBI or DOJ. 
uh, they don't interrogate the cases very closely. And during the ISIS era, there was a lot of fear and uh, anger, understandably in some sense. But you know, if you're a journalist or if you're a lawyer or if you're a judge or you're an FBI agent, you have to, your whole job is to look at these things soberly and uh, without the, you know, the heat of emotion and uh, understanding that unpacking this rationally. It's just, it's just not done. So, you know, my interest in these cases is because I would like to see people who are not guilty crimes or not go to jail. That's, you know, the interest of justice. But also, it's just very interesting from a you know societal perspective, how does this happen? How do all these interesting people go to jail? How is somebody who's in jail, Ahmed Obawali, for, you know, decades, he's going to be in jail for decades of his life, uh, having suffered great torture and all these other terrible things have occurred to him. And as he said, there's no victim here. There's no, nothing happened. Like, there's people who committed heinous murders and rapes and other terrible crimes who go to jail for less time than him and the 465 people and many, many others. So what is it about this you know, accusation that uh, allows a sort of exceptional cruelty and uh, punitive uh, behavior to take place in these cases? I think that by understanding them, you can understand a lot more about uh, how you know, life uh, functions in the United States today for people on the margins. Thank you so much, Mataza, and all of you. Um, there's so much to unpack. I, I want to, I guess, just picking up on things you all said, part of what we wanted to do here was sort of highlight specific cases, but also put this in context of sort of the broader arc of what's happened and the patterns across cases. And I think you all talked about that. But you know, material support, vessel, what Fahad was charged with, that, and I'm going to refer to a database on the Intercept's website, Trial and Terror, which I think does a great job, but Trevor Aronson does a great job of sort of compiling the data on these cases. And if you look at prosecutions since 9-11, the majority, over half, I think, have, have involved material support charges, which is just under a federal statute, a broad catch-all charge that sweeps in things like, you know, material support to a designated foreign terrorist organization can look like what happened at Fahad's case, which is storing luggage in your apartment for two weeks that was then allegedly delivered to a, to a member of Al-Qaeda. I mean, that has constituted material support. Another person, Tariq Mahana. I mean, these legacy cases that we're talking about from the first decade after 9-11, these are people who are still, many of whom are still serving time in prison. Tariq Mahana, you know, material support for translating a document that was then allegedly provided to Al-Qaeda. So conduct that was very much on the border of protected First Amendment activity or association. The stings, Murtaza, that you were talking about, that's also, and the use of informants has also figured prominently in these cases. So like a third, I'm thinking of the stat, looking to this database again, the trial and terror database, more than a third of, of these cases have involved stings, the use of informants who have in many ways manufactured or prodded people along to the point of, you know, um, an arrest. There are sort of these egregious cases that we can, we talked about some of them, like the Fort Dix 5 case, the Newburgh 4 is another, another sort of outrageous case. In later years, I mean, I feel like when I was looking at what happened when ISIS came into the picture in 2014, 15, those prosecutions were just run-of-the-mill cases were just the use of informants who would find someone online who was looking up certain material relating to ISIS, uh, would befriend the person, and then eventually over time and building this relationship, get them to, for example, buy a plane ticket to go to, to travel to the region, Syria or, or any country in the region. And that, that then the, the arrest happened at the airport. I mean, that constituted material support. There were dozens of those cases of mostly young people, you know, people in their late teens, early 20s, who were prodded along, pushed along by informants who found them online. 
I guess that's just to say, you know, we've talked about specific cases, but these sort of buckets of material support and these sting operations using informants have, have constituted the majority of these cases. Um, can we turn now to, you know, Mertazza, you were saying there's still, like among the media, you know, it's still hard to get people to really interrogate these cases and really examine them. And I guess I wanted to turn to the organizing and the work that was done to try to change the narrative, expose what's happening, both by reporters like you and Jean, the organizing you've been involved in and Fassel around Fahad's case. Can you talk about, um, yeah, what, what made it so hard and why does it continue to be hard? Um, why is there this strange disconnect between the way we understand the criminal justice system, the court system, when it comes to criminal cases, and this totally different understanding or desire to look past conviction when it comes to national security or terrorism? It's a great question. I think it's a heavy politicization of the issue. And, you know, the media, not to blame it all on the media, but, you know, there's like, they turned this issue into such a sensational, unbelievably the most sensational issue in the United States. Like that word terrorism or terrorist has a talismanic power now, effectively, uh, when it's applied to somebody. And then it's like, nobody wants to touch them. I'll give you an example of the 465 case too. At the time when the allegations were made, not to like name any specific organizations, but organizations that you would not expect, they sort of sided with the FBI or the, in the initial wake of the, they assumed the, the uh, accusations were true and they were under a lot of political pressure at the time. And, you know, they were associated with the Muslim community in the United States. And now their tune usually is a bit different, but uh, you know, at the time they just said that, you know, we're sorry this happened or, you know, we condemn this and so forth. And I think that speaks to, you know, people being on one hand very afraid of these cases. On the other hand, people who were pursuing them, it's sort of like exciting or something, or it's sort of uh, it's great career boon for a lot of people. It's great coverage for the media. They got a lot of mileage out of the case. The FBI likes to impress upon the public that there was no, in many press, press releases that say this, or many statements that DOJ says this, that there was never any uh, danger to the public when they, they say this, when they announced many of these arrests. It was, it was never any danger to the public. What was the actual serious thing that was taking place here? It's a bit of a curious statement. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of, a lot of short memory in the media too. I, I'm not saying that things are not, don't change or things are not learned and there's a cumulative process of knowledge that takes place. I think there's a lot of more appreciation now, at least it's possible that these many cases, terrorism are bogus. That's the thing that people accept to be the case. And I think that a lot of reporting and a few books like uh, Trevor Aaron's, Aronson's book, The Terror Factory, and uh, many, many other individual pieces that have been written have sort of uh, helped the public understand that these cases often have uh, shortcomings in them. But there's like, the normative uh, response when, you know, when something's happening in the broader political context is very heightened or very, uh, very hostile or very excited, uh, you could say, and the ISIS era, people were very upset about ISIS, it was a foreign terrorist group, carried out a few terrorist attacks in the, around the world. And at that time, the anger and excitement was so much that there was very limited appetite to question these cases at first. And uh, it started to change a bit because... Some of them were just so over the line that uh, people could see that something was not adding up here. But it's a constant battle because, you know, for every skeptical story or story which actually bothers to interrogate the facts or at least make a few phone calls, understand what happened here, or even read the government's charging documents, which is amazingly reporters don't do, uh, the vast majority. You know, you know, there are many cases where people don't do that. The, the vast, vast majority of local news coverage or national coverage is simply a restatement of the government's facts and then very, very little interrogation beyond that. And as a result, people still have, I think that's happened again, if there was another, God forbid, another terrorist attack in the United States. And there are more cases like this. 
it wouldn't be maybe as bad as post 9-11 exactly, but you know, many of the same, uh, same uh, pathologies still exist there and would result in, I think, a lot of innocent people in jail for a long time, uh, simply because the system is set up to produce that and incentivize that. Gene, can you talk about from an organizing perspective, what was hard, what the challenges were, and continues to be? Yeah, I mean, I think, so we're at this 20 year anniversary and, uh, and people are throwing around words like self-reflection and self-criticism. And, and I think what made it extremely hard at first, and I agree with Murtaza that part of it was just the media, just unwillingness to like, again, one of the things I, I don't love about the media is a kind of both sides-ism that they sometimes engage in. But I mean, there was no, there, there was never even a notion that there might be like, you have to have a, or there's, there might be another side of this. So I think that's a problem. But I think one of the other key barriers was kind of the ways that civil libertarians, human rights groups, civil liberties groups had constructed this narrative around their advocacy around Guantanamo that rested on the kind of openness and fairness of the federal system that was very much about like, you know, that in some sense, even as other parts of their work was being critical of the injustices of the criminal justice system, this incredible siloing. So nobody, almost nobody really doing work on, you know, taking the criminal justice stuff into the national security context. And so part of what made it really difficult at first was the ways that it was so hard to get both media coverage, but also kind of civil rights and civil liberties groups to, to see this aspect of the problem. And I think this goes back a little bit to what Murtaza was saying, like nobody wanted to be, and there'd been by this point managed to be a carve out in terms of like, you could be advocating for Guantanamo. That didn't mean you, what you wanted to be supporting terrorists, but it, it was interesting in the federal system, there was still this like, because of this idea that there was like a judge that was going to be an arbiter, you know, that the notion that there might need to be advocacy in these cases, that there might need to be political campaign to sort of bring scrutiny on this just was really difficult. And so in many ways, the movement started through kind of grassroots people coming out of coming out of the peace community, coming out of certainly a civil rights community who, similar to, again, my politicization around this, sort of was, were all of a sudden surprised, I think, that this was happening right here under our noses. Uh, and I think, but it's this very grassroots movement. And again, it's getting like, um, like no real attention or coverage for years, right? And so, so it's a very, it's a, it's a lonely a thing for a while, right? And, and it starts to pick up steam, but still like, I have this crazy moment, right, a few years ago when Jeffrey Epstein kills himself at MCC. And then this like flood of reporters, I mean, they're calling, they're writing, they're like, you know, because I'd done all this work on MCC. And I was like, we stood outside of MCC for years trying to shine a light on this. And we reached out. I sat with the New York Times so many times trying to be like, this is a torture site under your nose. And, and with so many different reporters there. And, and then when Jeffrey Epstein kills himself, it's just like, it was crazy. And so, again, I think it's, I think there was this mythology that we brought in, we bought into, I think there was this siloing, right? And so I think that also got in the way. Uh, and I think there was fear about being associated with terrorists 
And yeah, so I think those are some of the barriers. Fassel, I don't know if there's anything you want to add, just from like a community perspective. Yeah. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking about that. We have a few Muslim-oriented civil liberty, civil rights organizations, very high profile in our communities. And for the most part, these organizations are abject failures towards the community, right? They've, they've basically done a disservice to the community because they're supposed to be organizations that protect civil liberties, civil rights. They're supposed to be organizations that would want to stand up for things like, you know, don't torture people. That's not what happened. What we saw was an embrace of like a patriotism from these organizations, right? Uh, they wrapped themselves in, our, in a flag. And these are, you know, you know somewhat Main Street organizations. And, uh, you know, at a personal level, I just, I've been utterly disappointed by them. One organization uh, gave Eric Holder about 11 years ago their man of the year as he's, you know, signing off and overseeing these prosecutions, right? In San Francisco, this organization is based out of, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are failures within our own communities uh, on their own, especially the Muslim community, on their perspective on these things. They're not, you know, a rational perspective. They're not a perspective based on justice and fair treatment. These organizations prop themselves up as, you know, ostensibly, we are the champions of it, but their actions didn't really support their rhetoric in any shape or form. I spoke to them at a personal level. I saw their actions. And for the most part, they continue to be, you know, failing type organizations for the community. I don't have much respect for them. I have a great deal of respect for CCR and, uh, you know, uh, ACLU's National Security Division because, you know, they put into practice right? Uh, the, these, these lofty goals of upholding justice, of getting human beings fair treatment. I didn't see it within our own community. You know, when it becomes okay, I saw some of these organizations jump on bandwagons, but they, they suck the money out of the community saying, yeah, we'll champion you. You know, these causes we're going to protect, but they don't. They're, you know, they're failures. A legal fund that, <laughs> that is out there and starts organizing around these cases. I know their machinations and, you know, it doesn't, even in their defense of people, for the most part, they become failures. They, they, they decide what the safe cases are. And I think <laughs> there's a lot of that, that that has to be understood and analyzed. And again, I'm, I'm speaking, speaking from a very personal perspective. At some point, there's going to be a, a toll or an analysis of, 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 of these events and these organizations and this period in this era, a very dark era of our existence here. So when you said the, the safe cases, it sort of brought me to what I want to ask you guys next. And I think we're, we've been talking for a while. So um, maybe we can end with, with this question. But, you know, in a lot of these cases, we're not talking about innocence, you know, factual innocence, where the problems are, I mean, in a lot of cases we are, but in other cases, we're talking about the link, you know, disproportionate punishment, the, the prison time people are getting for the actual conduct they're being charged with. We're talking about conditions in which they're being held that totally undermine their right to a defense and post-conviction constitute torture. So, you know, these are harder cases, right, in some ways, because it's not, they're not the sort of low-hanging fruit or whatever people call those things. Can you guys talk about why it matters? I mean, for, in terms of the broader movement and conversation around decarceration and even abolition. Why do these cases matter? I mean, they obviously matter because of the people inside their families or communities, the human impact 
and the importance of exposing abuse wherever it occurs, but broader, bigger picture, I guess, for work being done to rethink and transform the prison industrial complex and the criminal justice system. How do these cases fit in and why is it important to be doing this work and talking about these cases and doing this advocacy? I think the post 9-11 era, the U.S. Uh, law enforcement response domestically, it created a template for how future political crises maybe emanating from different communities could be dealt with. And there's been a legal infrastructure and uh, national security infrastructure, surveillance and uh, you know, legal precedents too set in these very extreme precedents set in these uh, in these years that, you know, it could be turning against other people in the future. And, you know, oftentimes I make this point that historically, when a country becomes authoritarian, uh, the authoritarian start, authoritarianism begins not by targeting the majority community, targets some unpopular, you know, small minority, and then, but then the precedent begins there, and then the skills and practices are developed on those, that community. So, you know, there's all these cases, and there's, as mentioned, these cases of people who are completely innocent, the people who are the more difficult cases, you could say, which there were some sort of gray zone or ambiguity. But the thing is, in the United States, you know, we have a justice system where, you know, we don't say that if someone commits a murder, then fortunately, sometimes people are treated very punitively, but the, the principle is not such that there are people who are cast out of humanity by committing some certain crime or so forth. And there's no reason why the terrorism uh, allegation should necessarily be different than that. People, if they commit a crime, which is a serious crime, they should punish according to the very well-articulated means we have for responding to crime historically. We create a category of exception where even if someone does not commit a crime or there's some ambiguity about it, or they may be this type of person, then all the legal rule books, you know, go out the window and, you know, you can, go, you can have prison camps, extrajudicial prison camps and so forth. People in jail for many, many years without charge, preemptive prosecutions, uh, you know, the use of these things and so forth, which generate cases out of nowhere, getting people who are considered undesirables, quote unquote, just off the street. It's very totalitarian and authoritarian behavior in miniature. And there's no reason now that it hasn't happened in miniature that could happen in more broadly. And, uh, you know, we could see that going forward. Politics always shifts. You know, Muslims, post 9-11, Muslim Americans were very much on the dock and they suffered a lot for that reason from the justice system. But, you know, in the future, it'll be somebody else. And in the past, it was somebody else too. You know, I say that I tell people that it's important for the moral aspect because, you know, everyone, every individual person deserves a fair shot. They deserve justice and they deserve their fate to be weighed according to their actual actions and uh, what took place, whether, you know, whether it's a completely innocence or partial innocence or something like that. This is not, uh, there's not some people who just cast out of humanity for because they're accused of something. But secondly, it's in people's self-interest. It's people's self-interest to develop, defend this thing that belongs to all of us, which is, you know, the rule of law in the United States intended to protect every single person in this country, regardless of uh, where their life takes them or who they are. And the degradation of that, you know, it's maybe suffered by certain people and certain people's families to at one time, point in time, but when it's degraded, others will suffer in the future. So I think it's a is a reasonable case for self-interest that people should pay attention to these cases and to continue to scrutinize them and not allow, you know, the extremely punitive and the unfair practices to be entrenched without challenge. Thanks, Mutasa. Dasa, Jean? Um, I guess I wanted to say two things. Um, one is not an answer to your question, but it kind of goes back to the previous question, which is I think part of what we need to be scrutinizing here um, and, and one of the things we've seen in the past few weeks around the war in Afghanistan is finally some numbers about how much we spent on that. And I think there's no way to understand where these cases come from, from the political economy of kind of what happens after 9-11 to kind of particularly domestic law enforcement. And it's just a, like, you know, it's an explosion of domestic law enforcement and an explosion of money. 
Uh, and I think we, we haven't yet seen the kind of research and journalism because it's so hard to get these numbers of just how much money it was, is. But in order to justify that kind of budget, and even from what we know, like, so the FBI, most of its budget, you know, in the years after 9-11 is going to go towards national, you know, domestic national security stuff. But to justify that, right, part of what, where these cases become so crucial is to sort of say, look, we're preventing things, we're, we're doing a job, we're, and so to see the role, like, I think people have done some really important work in terms of conceptualizing what a prison industrial complex is and how many people are invested then in, and jobs in that. And so then you have to be producing like results. And so again, I think we need much more scrutiny of that. I guess the, the answer to your question is kind of picking up your, you know, I think sometimes we tend to think about like the way forward is the low hanging fruit, the most sympathetic, right? And, and I think particularly around things like solitary confinement, right? And it, it makes sense in some ways, right? Solid, you know, waging the campaign against solitary confinement for people under 18 or, but that at base, if you believe that prolonged solitary confinement is torture, then it, you actually have to start with what we might call the high hanging fruit, right? Because as long as you have the high hanging fruit, solitary confinement exists. If you dismantle the idea that for terrorists, for uh, people who commit, you know, the, the incest, you know, incest, right? The people who are, who we imagine is that that is still torture to them and that we don't torture. Like, we're not going to defeat solitary confinement, I don't believe, until we take on the hardest cases. Because at some level, if we don't, then we're sort of tacitly saying, okay, some people don't deserve this, but this is it's necessary, it's useful, it's, you know, we, ha we still have to have it because of these super bad guys. And so in some sense, all the research, right, that shows how it's torture then gets kind of shunted aside. So I guess in terms of building campaigns against, you know, some of these very inhumane practices, I think we have to kind of reconceptualize kind of the importance of going after the harder, the harder uh, cases. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, just, you know, the past 20 years, our community has been ravaged by surveillance, <clears throat> by informants. I don't want to meet new friends, or I don't want to make new friends. You know, our mosques have been spied upon. Uh, Matt Apuzo and Adam Goldberg wrote a book called Enemies Within that details that Trevor Aronson's work at The Intercept, Murtaza's work, you know, highlights all these type of things. And, you know, we were at the brunt end of it for the past 20 years. And that's not a future I want for my kids. We don't have safe spaces to grow explore, think, have conversations. And that's tragic, right? And that's by design as well, by the powers that be, their policies, their structure, their law enforcement initiatives, right? They were designed to it. Recently in the New York Times, a guy named Terry Albury, a former FBI agent, basically speaks to this in detail. Invite everybody to go read that book. I think, uh, not book, that, that article in the New York Times from last week, uh, I Destroy Lives, you know? He talks about it in detail. He was stationed in Minneapolis in many of these ISIS cases, and basically, he talks about uh, law enforcement outreach being a facade, a hoax, as a ploy to, you know, undermine communities. Who wants that? After they're done with my community, they're going to move on to another community. They have moved on to other communities. Who wants to normalize this type of interaction? <laughs> Shouldn't we be allowed? Shouldn't my children be allowed to have a fair opportunity to grow up without the threat of being spied upon, without the threat of... Uh, having informants placed in their midst and putting them at risk. And we have to decide now who 
has the right thoughts about these things, who's working on these things, and how to, which groups are working on these things, and how to get, go about addressing it to the larger public for all our well-being. Thank you, Faisal. We could keep talking. I mean, I, I guess I would just want to end, really end now, with any, in terms of people who need, who are in now, you Murtaza, earlier you were saying, you know, lots of cases and names we know and that we talked about today, but others that are way under the radar, many. But are there any particular cases or people who need attention right now that you can think of or want to share before we end? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Every time I write about the subject, even I wrote a piece, a retrospective about it for, uh, you know, the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Inevitably, I get people reaching out to me, family members, people in prison, uh, cases which are under-scrutinized, people from prison directly contacting me via core links or by phone and so forth. There's just so, so many. I could pick yeah. many. And, uh, you know, the one I just will keep belaboring because I... Uh, it's like my Moby Dick is the Fort Dix one because they're still in jail for life in prison right. for that case. And I think if you study that case and the facts of the case, you will see it's emblematic of all the wrong things that happened after 9-11 and the un unaddressed wrongs too that are still taking place there. The father of the three brothers arrested actually died a few years ago, two years ago, and I knew him very well. And his last, only thing he wanted was to see his sons one last time. He used to say that if I could just see my sons one more time outside of prison, I could just die happy and then that's all I want. And he never got to see that because just the cruelty and the inertia and the people wanted covering, covering, you know, their flaws or their failures in the past, stubbornness, uh, all these things. Racism, obviously, of course, too. All these things conspire to put, keep people like them in jail or put them in jail beyond the point that uh, anybody would ever think this is rational or normal. And one thing I would say, though, regarding looking back over cases, if you look at the cases of the first decade after 9-11, you'll find people who are convicted according to this uh, academic theory referred to as predisposition. So predisposition was the idea that, you know, there was all these radicalization frameworks post 9-11 which were created, you know, the NYPD framework and many, many others, uh, very pseudo-academic and pseudo-scientific, but they basically were used to establish that certain people, because of their beliefs, as attributed to them by, you know, the prosecution and their experts, were predisposed to violence, so they could not be dissuaded from violence regardless of uh, whether they actually did the actual thing they're being accused of or not. So it was like a trump card for getting, for getting prosecutions, and it effectively it meant that anyone who was Muslim potentially could get sent to jail on terrorism charges regardless of the context because all you had to do was an expert witness the prosecution had to say that this person's beliefs, you know, they're a Muslim or a certain type of Muslim, and then, you know, they're in, in inherently violent. So don't worry too much about the actual accusations. Look at that. So, you know, you cannot, this academic consensus on the subject has evolved and it's completely rejects that now. And there was never any logic or substantiation behind it by any empirical measure at all. The experts like Evan Coleman and others who were very much involved in courts in that era, you know, they cannot really use them anymore because it's just so obviously spurious. But, you know, look at the predisposition convictions. Look at all those cases. People are still in jail, oftentimes for decades or life. And you'll see that, uh, you'll see that many, many people are still in jail unjustly. And, you know, it's a good way of unpacking the legacy of that era and reckoning with it and also defending it's happening in the future. Yeah, and I'm going to plug your, your recent article on The Intercept about the Fortix Five, which talks about Evan Coleman and sort of debunked theories of radicalization uh, and the cases you're talking about. So thank you all so 
very much huge amount of respect for each of you. All of the resources and articles and I don't know, things, cases that we talked about, we will name, mention, or link to in the description that goes out with the podcast. And thank you all for being here and everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. Just a reminder to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you want to find out more about our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. That's all until next time on The Activist Files. (music) 